this morning. The title is Only by Prayer. You can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 9. As we appreciate the context of today, I'm going to read starting in verse 2, although that is not where we're going to spend our time today. You need to understand what happens here starting in verse 2. Mark chapter 9 in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. So what does transfigured mean? So it tells us here. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Let me just emphasize here that Moses was to these men greater than any figure in our American history. Our American history is short compared to the history of the nation of Israel that these men had experienced. And so you can take any great man, George Washington, any other great man that our country looks up to, and the influence upon that man in our culture is not near what Moses was to these men. So to see Moses and Elijah, which was also they considered as a great prophet, there standing with Jesus, talking with Jesus, This was mind-blowing. This was knee-shaking. This was overwhelming to them. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, why did Peter say that? Well, verse 6 tells us why he said that. For, that's an explanation here, he did not know what to say. For they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, They no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Our text today is linked to this transfiguration scene. In my studies, I don't know, I came across the reality here that I don't know that I had realized before. And it makes this passage all the more special once we realize its context. And as I was preparing, I read R. Kent Hughes and what he had to say in this passage. And 
I'm not sure if he's still preaching, but he, I think he's a preacher of the past. I know he's still alive. I've read several of his books. But he, he's just, he has a knack for capturing things um, the way we would experience them and feel them. And so his way of introducing this passage is perfect. Now, it starts with a picture in the Vatican that hangs, a painting. You say, well, what's that got to do with me? Listen, and I think you might appreciate what he says here. In the Vatican gallery hangs Raphael's last painting, which some think to be his greatest painting. It is entitled The Transfiguration. The uppermost part pictures the transfigured form of Jesus with Moses on the left and Elijah on the right. This is the part we expect with the painting of the transfiguration. What comes next, we do not expect in a picture of the transfiguration. On the next level down are three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Actually, what we don't expect comes after this, I'm sorry. On the next level down are the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, recently awakened and shielding their eyes from Jesus' blinding brilliance. Now, here's what we do not expect. Then, on the ground level, is a poor, demon-possessed boy. His mouth hideously gaping with wild ravings. At his side is his desperate father. Surrounding them are the rest of the disciples some of whom are pointing upward to the glowing figure of Christ, who will be the boy's only answer. Raphael has brilliantly captured something of the overwhelming contrast between the glorious mount of transfiguration and the troubled world waiting below. So here's what I... I did not realize when Jesus and the three disciples came down off of this mountain, the first thing that greeted them was a crowd with the rest of the disciples arguing because the disciples could not heal this demon-possessed boy like they had done many times before. So they came from a moment of unbelievable glory down to the reality of earth where there was arguments, there was failure, faithlessness, discouragement, depression, and hopelessness. That's a phenomenal contrast. From great glory, unbelievable glory, to the depths of the reality of the gloom that we face on this earth. Let's pray. Oh God, this morning, as we consider these truths, I pray that they be real to us but also that the lesson here for us would be all the more 
imported to us, that we would take it to heart humbly. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. First of all today, struggling with results. This is where we find the rest of the disciples. So Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, as they're coming from the mountain, and they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. This is the rest of the disciples, aside from Peter, James, and John. They saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Jesus' arrival was unexpected, and of course, the whole attention shifts to Jesus when he shows up. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. I want to stop here just for a second. Uh, when it says, did Jesus ask what they were arguing about? We don't know who he asked. Was he asking the disciples? Was he asking the crowd? Um, as I studied for this, we don't know. And so we're going to leave the question general. He asked whether someone in the crowd or the disciples or all of them in general together. He asked this question. And so going on, father's talking about what's happening with his son. He says, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So here we have a struggle with results. Now, to us, it seems otherworldly, out of our common experience, but this was something that was normal for the disciples. Jesus had commissioned them to heal and exercise demons, to heal people and exercise demons. This was a part of their service to the Lord, and they had done it many times before. This was a part of the evidence of the breaking in of God's kingdom through Jesus Christ on earth. This healing and this exorcism and this teaching and preaching during Jesus' earthly ministry. This was a momentous time in the history of our world. Jesus breaking in and appearing and establishing his kingdom. And so you can just imagine here, these disciples, they approach this demon-possessed boy like they had been other times. And imagine with me one of the disciples stepping up to do this. Just kind of think through this, how this could have gone. And maybe at this point, the crowd had already formed because of just of the, the reputation of Jesus or his disciples. And maybe the crowd saw this father and they knew this father and the struggles of this boy, perhaps. And perhaps, oh, okay, we're going to tag along and see what happens here. And so they, they start, they come up to the disciples and they ask, and they, the father presents his case, please, please uh, help my son. And then there was something else that happened. There were religious leaders from out of town there in the community, probably tagging along and following Jesus and his disciples wherever they went. And this wasn't a friendly visit. Religious leaders were making trips from Jerusalem and 
going to where Jesus and his disciples were because they were opposing them and they were not happy with them. They were looking for ways to discredit them. And you have religious leaders seeking to discredit Jesus' ministry and his disciples' ministry present. So you have one of these disciples stepping up. Probably a crowd's already formed. There's religious leaders close by watching as well. Maybe even outright opposing them. They step up. Here's the father with high hopes. And one disciple steps up. And however they did it, sought to cast out that demon. Nothing happens. The father had heard great things. He's like, finally, my moment has arrived. And here the father observes. He wants health. He wants his child to be back to normal. Disciple says this thing. Demon's still there. Shock, surprise, a tense moment of silence. Everyone's trying to figure out what just did not happen. I imagine a smirk on the religious leader's face. Disappointment on the father's face. Everybody pulling out their phones and posting on social media. Okay, well, obviously that's an exaggeration, but it was a sensation when it just happened. Okay, so then maybe another disciple steps up, goes through the same routine, and nothing happens. It doesn't say how many of the disciples attempted. It just said that the disciples could not do it. So I assume that there are multiple disciples that tried to do their process, and they failed. And here, this father, let me emphasize here, what he was going through with his child was life-altering. His life was consumed with trying to help his child. This was mind-blowing. It was, it was hard for us to comprehend. I've, I've had some relationships with parents over the years who had a child that was so hard to deal with, so hard to control, so hard to help them developmentally, it consumed their lives. And that is where this father was. This father was broken. His life was consumed with trying to help his boy. So as we talk about our struggle with results, here are the disciples struggle with the results. It, it didn't happen the way it happened before. And as you and I serve God, there are times when we struggle with results. Now, the detail is going to look different between us and the disciples, but the dynamics are going to be the same. Ministry is not happening with the results the way it used to. Why not? We've done it in the past this way. We expect it to work the same way as it did in the past. And here, don't lose sight of, there were arguments, there was frustration, there was disappointment surrounding this. This was a struggle with results that was volatile and hurtful and depressing. So struggling with results and then next, struggling with faith. Struggling with faith. Mark chapter 9 Starting in verse 18. 
And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. This is the father speaking. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And perhaps my tone of voice is not the way the fathers are. I, I, I suspect, suspect that that father's voice as he was talking to Jesus was desperate and broken, maybe even a little bit tearful. Verse 19, and Jesus answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him up by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. A great picture of just salvation right there, by the way, moving from death to life, picked up by Jesus. I want to draw your attention to the fact that we see a vivid example that evil is a destroying force. You must understand that evil is not some cool thing, some thing to joke about. TVs and movies have made wickedness hip or funny or telling the story on the side of the person who is involved with wickedness, making it a joke, making light of it, acting as if there is some sort of righteous cause for the side of evil. Evil starts with the devil, continues with his demons, Evil is further carried out through people, non-Christians, but also sometimes through Christians. And here we see a vivid example of the objective, Satan's objective, demons' objectives of what they're carrying out in their evil, and that is to destroy people. Do not Make light of that. Do not underestimate that. Evil's objective, it cannot help itself. That's all it is able to do. It is to destroy, to twist, to lead astray, to be consumed with darkness and destruction. Evil is a destroying force. There is no middle ground. 
And the hope of light only comes through Jesus himself. So again, I want to remind you here of the situation. We've been in the reality of the situation, how intense it is. But this is a situation where just a few moments ago, they were in unbelievable glory. And now they're in the midst. They're mired. They're in the muck of the struggles of darkness on this earth. And often we're going to find that with our experience here as followers of Christ. We will go from times of glory to times of muck, sometimes really quickly. Now, Jesus was here present and he was affected by this situation. What was his response? He had a very mixed response. You and I also can have mixed responses, complicated responses And Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. This is a very heartfelt, upsetting response. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Strong words, deep feelings. Who was he talking to again here? Was he talking to disciples? Was he talking to the crowd, religious leaders of Jerusalem? We don't know. In general, let's just leave it as the scripture does. It leaves it unsaid. He's just talking to everybody. Jesus was deeply bothered. He was bothered by faithlessness. Lack of faith on the disciples' part, yes. Lack of faith in religious people, religious leaders. Lack of faith in the crowd, from the crowd. Jesus is greatly disturbed by a lack of faith. And he asks another question, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? The idea here is this patience is running out. They've had enough opportunity to see him for who he is, and they're not getting it the way they're supposed to be getting it. I also want to draw your your attention to the fact that Jesus cares. Jesus asked the Father a question that is instructive for us. Jesus asked the Father how long this had been happening. You think Jesus already knew how long it had been happening? Of course he did. But he interacted with these people. He made a, a show of genuine care that they could understand. He gave the father a chance to tell his story and to explain his struggles. Jesus cares. He entered into the details of people's lives. And that's a messy way to have to live. When you get into the details of people's lives outside the walls of this church, it gets messy. But part of our mission is God's people is to outside the walls of this church, get into the details of people's lives. And Jesus is exhibiting that here. We're looking at here shaken faith. As we see this father, this father's faith was very fragile at this point. And we wonder, perhaps his faith is very fragile. It's been shaken up because of the failure of the disciples. 
This can happen with any spiritual leader or any follower of Christ as they serve others. Weaknesses in their life and failures in their life can weaken the faith of those who are around them. Now this man honestly, he tells Jesus, he's honest with him. He says, I'm shaken. I'm struggling. But then he also still wants to grow even though he's struggling. These are some of my favorite verses in the New Testament. The man says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, right away, the father comes right back with, with this and says, I believe, help my unbelief. This man has shaken faith, but willing. Love, love these verses. The reality, he knows where he's at. He knows he's struggling. Perhaps mentally he knows that Jesus can. Maybe he doesn't. But he's shaken. He says, I believe, but I know I'm struggling to believe. Help me. My friends, you and I are going to be shaken in our faith. You're going to struggle. In all that you know, mentally, factually, when it comes to the moment, the facts are going to fade away and the emotions and the physical response is going to come to the forefront. And you're not going to feel physically, you're not going to feel emotionally like what your mind might tell you mentally. And your faith, because you face that dichotomy of what you know, but you're not feeling what you know, and you're going to face that, and you're going to feel shaken. In those moments, to be honest to yourself about what's going on, because we can try to push that way. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm fine. I'm okay. No, to be honest with ourselves, to be honest to God, and be honest to others. Yes. I believe, but I'm also struggling. Help me to believe. Struggling with results, struggling with faith, and then struggling with defeat. Defeat. Mark chapter 9, verse 28 Sometime later, after this moment, and when, he, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So their question was, why did we fail? This is a common thing. People, whenever we fail or things don't go the way we think they should go, there's times of brooding, pondering, racking our brains, trying to figure out why things went the way they did and what we could have done different. 
And usually we can think of a lot of things we could have done better or occasionally we're like, oh, I did everything I could have done. I've done it right. Why isn't it working? I wonder how often you ask God how you could have done better. Which is the source of what Jesus is talking about here. Our natural reaction is to think of everything within our power to resolve a situation. And the unnatural thing, but the thing that happens by the power of the Spirit and our humility going to God is is learning how to find answer and direction and power through God himself. Through prayer. And what is absent from this narrative is any sort of hint that the disciples continued even though they were not able to continue to turn to the Lord and his power and his strength to resolve the situation. One of my favorite uh, verses in the Old Testament, we're not going to turn there today, is I think it's Elijah healing the Shulonites' son. Um, he had died. And when Elijah goes in to, to heal him, Elijah goes to do it. He prays and then he does an act to heal the boy and the boy doesn't come back alive. What did Elijah do? Two more times. He did the same thing and he persisted in prayer and then went back and tried to heal the boy. The idea here is is that instead of continuing to rely on our own strength, is to go back to the Lord and persist. And persist. And persist in humble humility and prayer before the Lord. Here, Jesus uses the generic term. He says only by prayer. And so Jesus uses this term. It's okay to use this term. But often when I hear us use the term generically prayer, I want us to say more. I don't want you to feel self-conscious, but I want you to think about it. We talk about the power of prayer. And that's not incorrect. But I would like us to take it a little further. Consider this. When we talk about the power of prayer, we talk of what God does through our prayers to him. So it is God's power. And yes, that power is availed through our going to prayer and relying on him and asking him for help. Okay, I agree with that. It's not wrong to say the power of prayer, but I encourage you, let's be a little bit more specific here as we talk about what we're doing here. And that is that it's God's power. And when we have obediently gone to him in prayer, he hears us and he works. It activates his power through us and through our prayer to achieving great things for his glory and our good. So I don't want you to feel bad if you say the power of prayer, but I would like to hear a little bit more often about what that means. And that it is God's power working through us as we obediently go to him in prayer.
It is God's power. And thanks be to Him, He has given us the, the communion of prayer with Him. And so it's more than just getting requests answered. It also is experiencing Him and His person in conversation. My wife and I, our relationship gets better when we get to spend an hour or two talking. Instead of saying, Katrina, will you do this for me? Will you do this for me? Will you do this for me? Do this? And asking, it's more than just asking her to do things for me. Yes, it is, it is that. We do things for each other. But it is also experiencing one another, experiencing each other's character, experiencing each other's heart. So yes, prayer is asking for things and asking for God's power because we cannot do it on our own. We need God's power to do it. But it is also communing with Him and experiencing Him. I want to talk about types of prayer. This is nothing special. This is just as I'm thinking about trying to communicate here to you. There are scheduled times of prayer. Some people, they're horrendous at schedules. That's fine. It is good, though, to try to get some sort of part of your day, whatever it is, to where you fairly regularly spend some time in prayer. Make it scheduled. Make it a part of your life. But also spontaneous. There are moments when you just find yourself going to prayer. I woke up a little bit before 5 a.m. this morning, and boom. Some things were on my heart, and I went to prayer. There's times when you just wake up in the middle of the night, boom, go to prayer. During the middle of the day, something, a temptation hits you, or something burdens you, or you become concerned about something, boom, go to prayer. Next, persistent prayer. There is a place for months-long, years-long, decades-long prayer, my friends. Persistent prayer. And then, desperate prayer. There are times when you are desperate Make sure in your times of desperation, there is times of prayer included in your desperation. And then extensive prayer. There are times, this college I went to, they talked about, one of the professors said, take a day with God. Whether it's, you know, three or four hours, you know, six or seven hours, get by yourself, pray, meditate, spend time in the scriptures. Extensive Prayer. If you have never taken three or four hours and just pray, it doesn't mean you pray every second of that time, but it's time set aside for prayer, reflection, meditation, opening your Bible. You need to do it, my friends. You're missing out. Take three or four hours. Set it aside. Spend those time, that time with God. This matter of prayer is probably one of your biggest spiritual struggles. I'm not picking on you, it's just probably the case. I understand this doesn't apply to everybody, but I think it applies to most. You see the desperation. You see the hopelessness. You see the frustration. You even see the argument that happened in the situation. And Jesus makes very clear that in their faithlessness, they were accomplishing things or trying to without prayer, without going to him in all the ways that we can. Struggling with results, struggling with faith, and then struggling with defeat. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.